So now I get to welcome Susan Schaefer to give our sermon today. And I'm so excited to hear what she has to say. I just, I know Susan is just a breath of fresh air. So take it away, Susan. Thank you, Caroline. Um, so during the time of Advent, I find myself drawn to the introduction of John's gospel, particularly a familiar sentence um, from John 1.14. And here it is in a few different translations. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the word became human and made his home among us. And then the message, which is the version that I tend to um, have in my head for this particular verse, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And the word became flesh, incarnation, God in skin, the merging of humanity and divinity of fleshiness and holiness. The incarnation is just a marvelous mystery, one that pulls me back into awe and wonder every December. Um, I find it especially fitting that our Advent wreath focus today was on the word joy, um, because I think it's a radical and liberating act to take joy in being in a body, to celebrate embodiment rather than scrutinizing it or distrusting it. And when I consider what it's like to be human, one of the first things that comes to mind is just the vulnerability of it. The vulnerability that opens us up for pain and suffering is also what allows us to embody that joy. Brene Brown says that joy is the most vulnerable emotion we experience. That if we cannot tolerate joy, what we do is start dress rehearsing tragedy. As if we're conditioned to see joy as a warning signal to start preparing for disaster or pain. And C.S. Lewis equates vulnerability with our capacity to love. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with little hobbies and luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe as in a casket. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And this reminds me of Jesus's teaching of when we try to save our life, we actually lose it. We miss out on a crucial part of being human. The vulnerability is part of living. Um, so when thinking about the Christmas story, I am drawn not only to the humanity and vulnerability of Jesus, but also that of Mary. We always stand to gain a better view of any subject when we include the lived experiences of women as well. And for me personally, pregnancy and childbirth were great teachers about joy and pain and vulnerability and being human. Um, we repeat Jesus's words, body broken for you, blood poured out for you every week. And I think he might've learned these words from his mother, from her example, at least. Seeing the Eucharist this way puts it in a different light for me and it gives it more nuance and texture to this idea of being born again. So not only do I have the um, 
remembrance of the crisp, clean waters of when I was baptized at 12 to experience new birth. But now I also have this messiness and pain of body broken and blood poured out, which reminds me that there's vulnerability required to give birth to something new. And I must admit, I felt a little rebellious when I started allowing myself to consider Mary maybe with more reverence or um, think of her more. Because growing up, I just was taught that seeing Mary in any sort of reverential way was something to steer clear of. It was an effort, I think, to maintain a clear distinction between our tradition and Catholicism. Um, that was just basically what it was. Um, but in the universal Christ, Richard Rohr has a chapter called The Feminine Incarnation. And he talks about Mary as a foundational symbol or archetype, symbolizing the first incarnation or Mother Earth. I love that. And also the major feminine archetype of the Christ mystery. He goes on to say, Mary is the great yes that humanity forever needs for Christ to be born into the world. If Christ and Jesus are the archetypes of what God is doing, Mary is the archetype of how to receive what God is doing and hand it on to others. And when we hear Mary referred to, it's with our in front of it, not my, as in our lady or our mother. It's, she's always addressed as a shared experience. And I think this is another important part of being in flesh, is being in community, being a part of each other in a meaningful way. Um, about 12 years ago, as a recently married 20-year-old college student, I was about to understand just how much I needed community when I found myself staring at a positive pregnancy test. During that time, not only were Kevin and I supported by our family and friends greatly, but also by society. We were eligible for Medicaid and WIC, and we even received unemployment for a few months when both of us lost our jobs at a local restaurant that had to close its doors when I was seven months pregnant. Experiencing labor for the first time was the most intense pain I'd ever felt. But Kevin and the nurses um, that were with me provided comfort and focus and made me feel not so alone in the pain. I'm sure Joseph had the sense to call for the midwives for Mary, which is something I hadn't considered before because I've grown so used to seeing her story with this traditional nativity scene in mind, which usually doesn't include midwives. <laughs> when our new family of three got home from the hospital, I was quite a mess, still in a lot of pain um, and extremely vulnerable. And my mom helped me as I constantly was adjusting to my changing body seemingly every day. Um, and we would just laugh together as tears of overwhelm streamed down my cheeks. And it was just such a bonding experience for us. Um, and of course our family was supplied with a solid week or so of casseroles and carry-ins, which helped us feel supported as well. And I was still taking classes that spring semester um, online. I chose, I was able to have the flexibility to choose some courses online. And all of those professors gave me lots of flexibility to kind of work ahead of schedule and turn things in um, on my timeline because Noah was born March 4th. So 
um, right in the middle of the semester. <laughs> so that was really nice too, that they were able to understand. It might have been because I was a family and child development major. So like they get it. Um, I wasn't, you know, maybe in other areas of um, learning that may have been not so sensitive to my situation, but thankfully they were. So all of this just helps me to see how much better humanity is experienced when in community. And when we bear each other's burdens and we acknowledge our need for each other, we need connection. Um, another aspect I think that is um, special to being in flesh and being human is experiencing time and subjectivity. Experiencing the feeling of unknown, something that's unknown and having at least a somewhat limited view of reality. An umwelt, which is a term I learned from Jared Bias's book, Love Matters More. Um, like a dolphin's umwelt would be different than a pigeon's or a human's umwelt. We all experience reality differently um, through how we're created. And so often I see this aspect of Jesus's humanity played down or minimized as if he's an exception to this role because of his divinity. It was this emphasis to an emphasis on his divinity for fear that we might somehow forget it if we leaned too much into Jesus's human side. It's like Jesus always had the divine plan in his back pocket, you know, um, always had like one up on us or something. And of course, we see that Jesus has, you know, an amazing prophetic identity um, and has a unique ability to perceive people's motives and unspoken thoughts and feelings. Um, but I think the experience of having to face the unknown, I see that as an important part of the human experience. And I think that Jesus entered into that in true solidarity with us to actually know what it's like to be human. Because to hear Jesus say, don't worry about tomorrow, when it would sound a little hollow if he's never actually had to experience tomorrow, the unknown like we do. The humanity of Jesus is actually what makes me trust this message more, along with his words to love our enemies and not serve money and forgive others. To know that Jesus felt betrayal and hunger and sadness without some superior view as if he was just an actor reading a script he wrote himself. Part of the human experience is the ability to be surprised or disappointed. And I think that Jesus's birth story is a good example of unpredictability and vulnerability playing out. So many birth stories are. And we've heard his so often that we often can't notice the surprises and shocking twists and turns. So instead, I wanna share another birth story. Some of you might've already heard this one, but it's a good one. So just nine short months after Noah was born, I found myself expecting again. Noah was born just one day after his due date, which is pretty prompt for babies as only 10% of babies actually are born on due dates. Um, and of course, due dates are just, you know, guesses basically, very educated guesses. But when you're told that date from the time you, you know, meet with your doctor for the first time, it's in your head for the nine months, you know, that you're expecting. 
And hope was four days after still not terrible. You know, lots of people go a lot longer than that. But for me, those three extra days were absurdly difficult. I was just ready to lay in my bed until she came. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to do anything. And I had, um, an 18 month old that needed to be taken care of. And, um, I could barely walk. I was so, so pregnant. (laughs) Um, so when I think about Advent as an experience of waiting, I think about those three days. Um, and it, and it gives it more, um, it just helps me, I guess, to, to think of it in that, in that way. So finally, after several nights of being woken up by contractions, just to have them fade away, robbing me of much needed sleep, the contractions stayed. And in the early hours of a late summer day, they got stronger. So after about three hours of managing them myself, I woke up Kevin. My contractions were actually less painful this time than they were with Noah. And they never got closer, as close together as what the textbook would say for your second or third child that they should be. Um, so we ca- kind of caught off guard around 6.30 in the morning. Um, Noah is still sleeping soundly in his room and things escalated. And my water broke and I found my stomach muscles were wanting to push without me even telling them to do that, which never happened before um, with Noah. So luckily, Kevin's parents lived right next door. He ran to get his mom so she could stay with Noah. And we dashed in the car. Well, I didn't dash, but Kevin was dashing all over the place. (laughs) And he threw in a couple of clean towels in the back of our two-door Chevy Cobalt, you know, just in case. He tried to make the 15 minute drive go faster, but as most of our journey was on a back road in the middle of Amish country, we got slowed down by buggies. We finally got to our last turn, a left turn at a red stoplight with four or so cars ahead of us. Kevin drove to the front in the lane beside and got the man's attention who was leading the line. My wife's in labor. So the man motioned for us to go through the red light and the intersection was pretty lifeless at 645 that morning. But as Kevin pressed on the gas, Hope decided that that was the precise moment she wanted to make her way into the world. So Kevin whipped the car into the parking lot of a restaurant called Bishop's on the corner of the intersection. He threw it in park, he ran around the car, ripped off the shorts he helped put on me 10 minutes earlier, and with the car door wide open, caught our daughter with the audience of a smooth, uh, of just a few small town folks on their way to work. Luckily, one of those small town folks was an OB nurse on her way to the same hospital that we were. She was ready to start her shift at seven o'clock that morning. She witnessed our mad dash through the red light and then our immediately, you know, parking in the parking lot. So she stopped to help. She was running towards our car saying, I'm a nurse, I'm a nurse. And I actually recognized her from um, my delivery experience with Noah 18 months before. It's a small, small hospital. So she, she helped me with both of my babies. She checked on Hope and I to make sure we were healthy and safe. And then we got out those towels that Kevin had brought along and wrapped Hope up in them while we waited for the ambulance to come. And she waited with us and then she met us back at the hospital. Um, So word travels pretty fast in a small town. 
And later that day, Kevin ran to the local grocery store just for a quick pickup of some things and overheard a man telling someone about he saw a baby being born on the corner of 57 and 30 that morning. <laughs> and that afternoon, we're still at the hospital. After receiving a tip from one of our family members, a writer from the local newspaper came and um, wrote about our story. He said it was always nice to have some good news to share. So if I was talking with Mary and swapping stories, I'd imagine we'd find some commonalities um, just in our chat about our less than ideal birth locations or unexpected visitors and the people who went out of their way to help us. It's moments like these, these very vulnerable, surprising human moments when we realize that ideas of having control are illusions. When you hold a baby who was just moments before in the safety of your womb, it feels like your very heart now resides outside of you, more vulnerable than ever. And I think Mary probably felt that in, in the stable that night. And it's probably how she felt 12 years later when they realized that Jesus wasn't with their traveling party and he was still back in Jerusalem. And I'm sure that's how she felt looking up at Jesus on the cross as well. But this is the message of Christmas that God is with us, Emmanuel. Incarnation isn't some declaration about someone being so much more special and different than the rest of us. It's not about separateness, it's an invitation, welcoming us in to the experience of goodness of being in flesh. Barbara Brown Taylor, um, in one of my favorite books, An Altar in the World, she says, there comes a time when it is vitally important for your spiritual health to drop your clothes, look in the mirror and say, here I am. This is the body like no other that my life has shaped. I live here. This is my soul's address. And as we close, I also wanted to share a beautiful hymn from that same chapter um, of her book that she shared. And we're going to use those words now just as a guided meditation. Um, so let's, let's begin. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the birthing the milk in the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world. Sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling, perceiving, within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing, impaired, happy in clothing, or lovingly bared. Good is the pleasure of God 
in our flesh. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Longing in all as in Jesus to dwell. Glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Amen.